Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates as we debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, frauds, scams, and multi-level marketing. Hey, Hunbots and Hunbros, it's 2024. I hope you had an amazing and safe new year, and you're ready to dive into season four of Life After MLM, because this year we are bringing it. Michelle and I have been working tirelessly, um, more so her than me, on the Discord. But this week we officially launched it. It is open. It's still kind of in beta. So anybody that wants to join is technically a beta tester. But we started it about a week ago. We already have a good number of people who have joined. Currently, we are doing random watch parties for The Curious Case of Natalia Grace, sort of watching it together with commentary and discussions afterwards. And we've been having so much fun doing that that we decided to create a standing watch party For the month of January, they're going to be on Mondays at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And we are starting off our monthly watch party with Lula Rich, which I have not seen since 2021. So many of you tell me that it's one of your favorite documentaries, that you watch it all the time. Some of you even say you watch it while you fall asleep. I'm going to be perfectly honest and candid and say I've literally only seen it twice. I feel like I don't need to see it because I lived it, but I'm going to watch it again We're going to watch it live. We have special guests. We're going to have Corey Shepard, who's one of the producers. We're going to have Lachey. We're going to have Courtney. And we're going to have Daryl all come on and watch with us. It's going to be really great. So if you want to watch Lula Rich with the people that are in Lula Rich, and if you have questions for us, this is what this is for. Please join our Discord. It's a really fun place. We have already have so many of you that are coming and engaging and ranking up finding all of the funny Easter eggs, and really just enjoying a fun community. We would love to have you. Uh, There's another thing that I wanted to bring up, and this is an MLM that I just discovered. A few of you have been sending me videos and asking me questions saying, what is this? What are they selling? What is this MLM? I can't find a name. I also could not find a name. Uh, It literally took reaching out to one of the people that was hawking this and saying, can I get more information, hun? And then they sent us some links. So big thank you to the follower who (laughs) took one for the team and sent me the links. I then made a TikTok video 
that has since gone medium viral. I think it's got, I don't know, 40 or 50,000 views on TikTok, which isn't too bad considering I'm not selling anything on the TikTok shop. The Huns in the video uh, found it and they claim that I've made them famous, which is weird because I'm not even famous. So I don't know how I did that. There are a lot of really interesting comments on the videos, which I shared both on TikTok and Instagram. Um, and I wanted to share some of my favorite ones with you guys because I feel like you understand and you might get a laugh out of them too. This one says, I hope living R3 seeks legal action. We are not public yet. Stop bashing this Christ-centered company. Elon Musk, Mark Cuban, and many other wealthy people have stated that network marketing is awesome. Please go away with your negativity. Please leave our company alone. And then someone else says, so in your link tree, you sell merch against direct marketing. So I'd go to you to buy merch against this MLM stuff. Seems kind of hypocritical. And you use Monet. That's an MLM as well. Bashing others and other companies isn't the way to go. If people want to give a portion of their commission to help stop human trafficking and hunting down the monsters doing it, it seems rather good. So quick side note, that whole you use a Monet thing was because another follower of mine had said, I hadn't seen this one yet, but I just wanted to say your hair, Roberta, it looks so lovely. It must be all the Monet with laughing face emojis. And then I, knowing it's a joke, respond with more laughing face emojis and say, it's all the rejuvenique oil. And then someone comes in and says that I had told someone else that I didn't use Monet. This comment is like being intentionally obtuse. So I respond saying, do you understand how jokes work? And then I said, I would never use that bullshit product line. I'm a cosmetologist and have professional integrity. So that's, that's the Monet joke. And then there's this comment, best product. Sounds like you're a hater. You failed to mention that we are a Republican ran company. Also, don't leave out the best part. And then somebody posted the exact same comment. So I said, your friend already said that copy paste is an MLM thing too. Then the other person replied and said, actually, I copied and pasted what she said, and she's not my friend. She's my mother. And then, you know, since they were so unbothered with my video full of lies, they actually uh, reposted my video with the caption that says, we're viral. Thank you to this incredible gal for doing her homework and sharing our company with the world. This is my big break. Fox 5 San Diego, can you guys get us on next? Apparently, Roberta Blevins is still bitter that an MLM she did back in the day didn't work. So she's made it her aim to bash companies via her social media. Here's what I know to be true. Bad publicity is still publicity. And then one of my followers said, become a founder now. All you need is three people signed up under you, but you have to be able to pay the $100 a month for products. Like that doesn't scream MLM because they were saying it wasn't an MLM. And then this is the reply. No, you can have a customer purchase products equal to $100 and you wouldn't need to. My dad, Victor Marx, is one of the most incredible men on planet Earth. I know it's hard for a majority of people to understand what him and David are doing or why, but this company is genuinely to help our country. We have God as our witness, and we don't expect everyone to clap or understand. But my dad is donating 90% of everything his organization brings in to continue his mission work of catching child predators. I encourage you to go look at his Instagram and sit and reflect why you're miserable enough to comment on this very angry lady's IG. There are bigger things going on in this world than sitting and bashing an organization you don't believe in. God's hand is on it, and we are grateful for all the lives impacted. And then the final one um, says, Roberta Blevins, you put a video of me without my permission on your page. I pray that you meet Jesus personally one day. 
He gives real joy, not just temporary highs from bashing people. You're lonely, and it's very visible. Still would love to do a live when you're ready. <laughs> yeah, right, like that's happening. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, um, the company is called Living R3. It is 100%, in my opinion, a pyramid scheme. It does not launch until March. It was supposed to launch this month. It got pushed back. Weird, surprise, surprise. That never happens. They're selling vitamins. So, you know, health and wellness. And it's very basic. And they want you to spend $100 a month for a minimum of six months and get three people underneath you within the first month and teach them how to get three people underneath them within the first month. And if you can successfully make it all six months and all literally like over 260 people underneath you can also all do it that way. By the end of the six month commitment is what they call it. You will have made $80,000. Now that's off a 5% commission which is literally pennies on the dollar. <laughs> it's just a pyramid scheme. And I wanted to not only tell Instagram and TikTok, which I was fine with just keeping it there, but you know, I mean, these people want to be famous. So let's light it up. Living R3 is the name of the MLM. You will be seeing it. It launches in March and I do have TikTok videos and uh, we'll have more TikTok videos to come. So if this is something that's interesting to you, this is what happens on the backside of making the podcast when I'm making videos on social media. And really like the amount of just sheer gusto and enthusiasm that these women have for vitamins. I just thought you guys would enjoy it. And then, you know, there's the flip side of being a hater. Uh, and then I got an email like this from a listener, Amanda, and I just wanted to read it because it's just, it's the antithesis of what we just heard. So it says, Roberta, I'm listening to your best of episode, and you just mentioned that you're getting a lot of pushback about focusing so much on Christianity this year. I want to say thank you. Between you and a couple other podcasts at the age of 41, I can now say that I was raised in a cult with evangelical Christianity. You helped me find the language to come to terms with it which then relieved me of any guilt that I may still have by not raising my children in religion. I'm so thankful I was able to walk away, but I didn't have the language to explain it until now. Keep doing it, mama. You fucking rock. Purity culture and fundamentalism episodes have been the most impactful for me. Do not stop. You're amazing. So I just want to say thank you to Amanda, because this right here is the reason that we create these episodes, that we have the hard conversations, and that we expose these predatory practices. I also want to update you guys about the Patreon. I know I've been talking about changing it up for 2024. It is now officially switched over. We have new tiers. We have a free seven-day trial if you're interested. We're, I mean, give yourself a week. You can binge a lot of content over there in a week. Um, but we have a new tier and we've changed the names. So now you can join the Patreon for free for seven days or you can, you can join our $3 tier, Kidnappers, our $5 tier, Scamfluencers, or our $10 tier, The Mega Huns. I want to say thank you to everybody who is currently a member or anybody who has been a member in the past. Every single cent goes back into the show and helps create this show and make it even more amazing. So it is really, really appreciated. And I want to say thank you to our newest members of the Patreon, Brandy Hadfield, Virginia Kay, Krista Knudsen-Thomas, Heather Scott, and Rachel Warren. Other than that, the only other update I have is the new music, which you just heard. And this music will be there until we 
maybe do some custom music, which we're in the talks of maybe getting like our own song. So we'll see. But this is the new music for now. So I just want to say I'm so happy with the way that season three wrapped up and I'm so excited with the way that season four is coming. It is really fantastic. And before we get into this episode, which is a Scientology episode with Kelly Copter, and it is fantastic, I need to let you know about the content warnings. In this episode, we talk about multiple very heavy topics and not just in passing, we actually go into detail. So if any of these topics are triggering to you, I would use caution when listening. We talk about child abuse, eating disorders, and suicide attempts. Please use extra caution, and if you need to, maybe skip this episode. But again, it is a really fantastic episode if you are interested in Scientology and their practices and sort of the cultic abuses that they do. Thank you again for being here with us in season four, and we will see you next week. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. We have another Scientology episode. We took a little break. It gets a little heavy, but I think that this story is really interesting and it adds to the weirdness of Scientology. And I think it's something that we need to talk about when we are really debunking what this cult looks like from the inside. And I would like to welcome to the show somebody who I've been told so many times is really great, but I never get to meet her. And I finally did. So I'd like to welcome to the show Kelly Copter. It is so nice to finally meet you face to face. Yes. Hello, Roberta Blevins. Thank you for having me. I've heard lots of good things about you too. And yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. In the episode with Marilyn, you came up because she came up on your show and, and she told her story there and she'd had nothing but great things to say about you. And Michelle just thinks you're great too. And everybody's just been like, oh, you have to meet Kelly. So here we are <laughs> meeting and we're going to tell your story. Uh, very interesting story. Very heavy story. Lots of trigger warnings, just like every other cult and Scientology episode. So please proceed with caution when listening to this story. But let's start at the very beginning. That's the best place to start. So you go ahead and take it away and let us know how you were introduced to Scientology. Absolutely. So I was born into Scientology. Both of my parents were members and they actually met and got together in Scientology. And so, yes, I am a little second generation Scientology baby. <laughs> they were sort of doing all the courses and everything like that. And my sort of introduction to it was some of the, I guess, ethics books and things at home. I was actually deemed a suppressive person at six years old. They were having some kind of problems in Scientology. It kind of wasn't working for them. You know, they weren't getting all of the wins, as they would call it, in the courses and stuff. And when that happens, Scientology will get you to look for, you know, a person or something that might be causing the issues in your life, an evil person that might be close by. Lucky me, that was me. <laughs> so, Oh, man. I had a security check done, which your listeners might already know what that is if you guys have done some things already, but it's essentially a sort of questionnaire that's done on the e-meters, which is the lie detector of Scientology. And they do these on kids as well. Age six to 12, they have their own special set of questions. You know, it's everything from have you ever disobeyed someone you should obey to 
what is a secret somebody's told you not to tell have you ever done anything while you were supposed to be in bed or asleep like there's just yeah there's a lot wow and i did this test and apparently according to my dad i rock slammed in this test and that's where the little needle on the e-meter goes kind of crazy and the only people that rock slam on an e-meter are like the true bad people of the world and so I was kind of lumped in with that and they were told yep definitely a suppressive person the next steps here are either to handle her or to disconnect from her now I'll tell you something a bit crazy which I found out only recently I've been back in touch with my dad which has been a wild kind of ride and he kind of explained what happened with this and he said we were considering giving you up for adoption but I didn't want to, as a knowing Scientologist, give a suppressive person to another family. (gasps) That was not what I was expecting. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It blew my mind when I read it because he wrote me like a letter and I was like, wait, what? So the only reason I wasn't up for adoption was because you don't want to put me on another family. Like, you know, I appreciate the honesty, but damn. (laughs) You were too damaged for any other family. So they had to maintain control of you so that you didn't wreak havoc in the world somewhere else. Correct. (laughs) Wow. Oh, that is like so the exact opposite of what I was hoping you were going to say. Oh, my God. Wow. So they went down the handling route instead, you know. Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. Well, wow. You just you don't ever think that somebody would say those words out loud in that order. You know what I mean? And then when they do, I can only imagine like how you feel because it just wow. I'm so sorry. You reconnect and that's what you get. You're like, okay, thank you so much. Yes, it's been a process, that's for sure. You know, I I actually, uh, it sounds so, I know that uh, sentence, you know, what I've just explained to you sounds so fucked up. I I have been trying to sort of figure this out with my dad for the last couple of years now. He reached out to me. So I know I'm jumping ahead a lot, but he reached out to me a couple of years ago during the pandemic and you know, I had a bunch of Scientology questions. I was like, yo, what the hell happened? I I remember so much weird shit. I needed to confirm some of my own memories. And we've been talking ever since. And even though some of this stuff is still messed up to hear, he is trying to kind of work through it with me, which I appreciate. And yeah, we're trying to find the way through is where I'm at. And yeah, I don't know. Wow. And I just want to say that because I do think even though it's messed up, there's some effort being put in when before it was just radio silence for 10 years, you know, so, which I know I've skipped massively ahead, but we can get to it. We can get to it. (laughs) No, it's totally fine. We chicken scratch all over the place over here. So your parents were relatively pretty young when they had you, right? Yes. My mum was 17. My dad was 26. I don't want to go into the ins and outs of what's a bit messed up there because I have my own very strong feelings about it but yeah they were very young and well and they were both practicing Scientologists yeah so were they set up in the church was it kind of like an arranged thing as far as I'm aware no they just gravitated towards each other for whatever reason they didn't plan to have me you know I just kind of 
popped into the equation and I'm glad I am still here. And they got married after after I popped out, basically. 17 is really young. Yes, very. I mean, you're already in a cult. You're already being controlled. You already have a husband who's almost 10 years older than you. And now you have a baby too. That's a lot for a 17-year-old. 100%. And, you know, my mom did some pretty messed up stuff. She came from a messed up background herself. While I don't ever think it's an excuse, it's a way that I've been able to heal and kind of move on from it too. There is a sort of theory or idea that in Scientology, like there's no such thing as children or, you know, whatever. We're all beings and we've been here for however many lifetimes and all of that. So the age thing, even though I think it's quite messed up for them, it would just be, well, you know, it's just another lifetime. So yeah, that's kind of what I want to say on that. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Scientologists believe that you are reincarnated and your soul just keeps going. And so you might be in the body of a 17 year old or a 26 year old, but you could be thousands of years old. 100%. Yep. It's a very interesting belief. So how old were you the first time that you used an e-meter and had a sec check? Six years old. And how many sessions did it take for them to decide that you were evil incarnate? One. Just the first one. They were like, this is it. She's done. This is the evil thing that has been placed into our life. We did the test and it confirmed it. Pretty much. Yeah. As far as I am aware, that's, you know, I don't remember ever being on it before. My dad never talked about e-meter handling me before this came up because I was suggested as this person that was causing their problems. They don't typically use e-meters on under six years old because good on them and their morals. But, you know, six years old. And then I would have those sessions regularly for the next sort of 10 years of my life until they would leave. In your own home? Yes. Yes. We had one at home. My dad was quite far up the bridge to total fucking nonsense or freedom, as they like to call it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think he felt somewhat qualified to use it. Scientologists would call it squirreling, which is like off practice out of standard tech Scientology. And he used that in a way that seems to freak everybody out when I tell them. But after this thing happened on the e-meter, I had a, an exorcism, essentially. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report, and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM 
and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the flow knit high-rise boyfriend jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claims standard approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash MLM for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. An exorcism for body thetans? Yes. So the theory of this was, because I have asked for an explanation, and this was one of the things that when when I got in touch with my dad, I was like, hey, I have this memory of this sort of exorcism thing, and I, I don't know even if it really happened. Did it happen? And he said, yes, it did happen. And I said, okay, you know, what the hell happened? And he was like, well... The theory was that, you know, you have these evil kind of spirits, aliens attached to you. And I was going to use Scientology to get rid of it in hopes that like a nice spirit could take the place of that one. Because then we were disconnecting from your evilness, but we weren't getting rid of you, which is a lot to hear. We talk about this because I was, were you a strong-willed child? Were you a kid that was kind of an imminent trouble source as a one, two, three, four, and five-year-old? Well, my first word was no, so I guess. (laughs) (laughs) You have to laugh. I guess so. I was always quite loud. I'm a bit of a a performery type. You know, I love to sing. And when I was a kid, I would put on shows and, you know, look at this thing I made. That was very much me. And I always had lots of good friends because of that. And I was a bit class clowny sometimes and I wasn't really, I didn't like go out of my way to hurt anyone. You know, I never bullied people. Like I didn't have that kind of a situation. I was just loud. (laughs) I was too loud probably. (laughs) This exorcism thing was like, you know, I was in my room on my bed and my dad is using what they call tone 40, which is in reference to the tone scale. It's really boring, so I'm not going to describe it, (laughs) but it's basically like the most intense intention which equals extremely loud direct shouting which he just did on me for a while until he felt like 
it had done something, you know, and I was crying, I was upset, I didn't know why I was being yelled at, it was really confusing. I'm pretty sure that only ended because I kind of went quiet and stopped crying eventually and then then it was over. It didn't work and they still thought I was evil because inevitably this thing would happen in cycles, right? Things would blow up, I'd be accused, they'd deal with me, handle me, fight me, whatever, and then it would be calm for a bit, for a couple of weeks or whatever, and then it would kick off again. I was evil, blah, blah, blah. So it was in cycles for years and years of my life, and it was the constant. So it was very walking on eggshells, and I'm sure some of your listeners can probably relate to that if they've ever been in a sort of narcissistic abuse relationship or something, you know. And if they are out there, I'm really sorry, because I know it's the worst and it sucks. Yeah. Well, I mean, what are they blaming you for? Is like the toaster breaks or something and it's Kelly's fault because she's evil and she's giving evil energy to the toaster? Or were you like playing <laughs> pranks on your family? <laughs> I wish it was toaster related. I really do. No, it would be honestly more things to do with their marriage. Oh. The marriage between my parents, my relationship with my siblings, the success of their business and the demise of Scientology, because I was kind of declared an enemy against it from such a young age. You know, they really thought I was trying to take it down. And granted, I did not like when they played the tapes in the car of L. Ron Hubbard talking, because guess what? He's really boring. I, I didn't really jive with it. And the books, I didn't want to read them. I wasn't interested in learning about it. I had some resistance to it for sure. And it didn't, it just didn't make sense to me. So this would go down in a sort of confessional style that e-meter was usually used. And I'd have to kind of write out a list of my crimes. That was one of the first things they wanted me to do. You know, and I'm a kid, right? So I'm writing like, oh, I thought my teacher's shoes were stupid today. Like, oh, I thought a bad thing about someone. And that's one of the things that stuck with me is that this feeling like I could never have a private thought ever because I just thought it's going to show up on the e-meter, like I'm going to have to say it. And I always did. And it's perhaps made me a bit blunt and a bit honest now. Yeah, I would have to write down anything I could think of that was a crime. And it, I would be racking my brain for ages before I had a good enough list. I come down with the list and the things they wanted on the list were not on the list. <laughs> of course not. So, you know, I would get on the e-meter and they, you know, start asking me questions and it usually starts out quite benign and innocent. It's a, you know, describe your morning to me, right? Describe what you did today. And I'll be like, okay, yeah, I got up, I made some cereal, I got dressed for school and then I went to school, right? But then it's like, no, go back again and do it in more detail and again and again in more detail. And when the needle moves on the e-meter, which it inevitably will, it's you're holding it and it's reacting to your skin and all this stuff. It's already quite a nerve wracking situation just to be monitored while you're talking, I guess. It will move at some point and they'll go that. What do you just think of? Like if I'm talking to you, Roberta, and, and I just go, oh, what did you what did you just think of right there? You know, it makes you feel like, I don't know. What I just think of, I don't know, you know, and that's exactly how I would react. I'd go, I don't know, and they go, well, what are you hiding? I'd be like, I'm not hiding anything. I, I just, I don't know. I wasn't thinking of anything. Like, and it, it gets really scary really fast. 
then they would say, you know, you're trying to ruin our marriage or you're trying to cause your brothers to have a fight or you want Scientology to fail. And it basically, you know, I'd go, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. And all of this. And it would keep going and it would be hours and hours of this questioning until I confessed to that, you know, and I think one of the reasons I always say I couldn't really get on board with it is because of that. Because when I confessed to stuff, it was like, it was news to me. You know, it was the first time I had even heard it. And I was like, I didn't think of that though. That's not something that was in my brain. So yeah, they wouldn't end until it got there. And eventually like, I just learned that's what they wanted. You know, that's what they wanted at the end of it. And I would promise I would not do it again. And I'd promise I'd be better I'd write them an apology letter every time and then it would be okay for a little while until it happened again. I can't even fathom the idea of confronting your small child and demanding that they take responsibility for trying to secretly destroy your marriage to the point where you're like, what bad things did you do? And you're like, oh, I I thought my teacher's hair looked dumb today. And they're like, no, we want to know about how you're trying to infiltrate our marriage and destroy it from the inside. And you're like, what is the first time you guys are having problems? They're like, you better admit to it. And you're like, yeah, it was me. And they're like, write us a letter and say, you'll never do it again. This is just insane. And I don't like to use that (laughs) word to describe things, but that is to the tune of hours. Who even has hours? to sit and yell at their kid like I mean what is everybody not doing that they should be doing to have all these extra hours to just audit and scream at their children to blame them on their own problems well when you have an alcoholic parent they find the time (laughs) jeez how often would you have to do these confrontational confessionals with the e-meter it's a great question You know, it varied on how long the periods of time were for things being okay. It could be a couple of weeks. It could be maybe a month or two, but it was always on the cards. You know, it was like, if I wasn't in that situation, I was in making amends. You know, that was the other sort of condition I was in, which sounds scarier than it is. It basically was cleaning and stuff like I did as much as I could to try and prove that I was being good. And I ended up being a caregiver to my younger brothers because my mum was just not awake until like four o'clock in the afternoon most times. So, you know, I was getting them ready for school. I would be cooking for them, cleaning the house, whatever, until they would like say, oh, do you want to sit downstairs and watch a movie with us tonight? Or you can come out on a walk with us today. Like, because the rest of the time I was just isolated because I was in this like lower condition type thing and I wouldn't be allowed to eat with them they would like leave food outside my door and I always say like I felt like I was like a dangerous prisoner and and they used to they weren't allowed to acknowledge me that I was there so it was just yeah it was really hard and yeah it was just really hard did they ever admit that their marital problems were of their own volition I mean maybe it's money because they're giving it all to Scientology or I mean obviously it's not their child who's creating this stuff out of nothing. So, I mean, if they really truly had marital problems, was any of that ever addressed or was it all just blamed on you? Specifically while I was there, it was blamed on me. Since talking to my dad again, he's acknowledged that, you know, that wasn't the case retrospectively, but I was only there till I was 16 years old. So I got kicked out when I was 16, 
which is two years after my parents even left Scientology. Like I was still a problem for them, even after they left that cult. I don't think they could have coped with the idea that me being an SP was like incorrect because of all of the treatment I had for it. They'd have to like face that it was not even a real thing and that they just put all that on me. So I I don't know that they could have faced it at the time. And yeah, I, I was on my own and I've not spoke to my mum since. The last thing she said to me was out of sight, out of mind, which is a beautiful Scientology phrase there for you. <laughs> wow. Oh my God, I am so sorry. Uh, but th- Okay, so they left Scientology. Let's go back a little bit. When you were 14, they decide to leave the church. Yeah. But are they still practicing Scientologists even though they're not like a part of the church? Or they were just like, this is not for us. We're done completely. Yeah, they left. You know, they realized basically that they'd been conned. They'd been scammed. They got very sucked into the like internet rabbit hole, reading forums and posts and getting mad about it. And they were very much involved in that world. The reasons my parents had issues with me were to do with Scientology, as in the doctrine was used to handle me. But the reasoning for that and the actual underlying stuff, I think, was always there. My mum has some, I think, some trauma or mental issues or something that she's never dealt with, which lasted and was transferred to me. And so when I turned 16, she sat my dad down for a conversation, went, well, it's time for her to go now. And I'm a teenager, by the way. I'm not pretending I'm perfect. I wasn't going out and doing drugs and getting drunk, but I was very involved in my like music community. I did like all of the extra like bands and stuff I could do. I was in like a jazz orchestra and things and we had gigs. We had gigs. We had stuff we were doing. And when, you know, I'd rehearse and stuff for weeks and weeks and be at school till nine o'clock every night rehearsing and practicing. And when they would get to the gig the day of the gig they would be like oh no you can't go to that and I'm like I have a whole group that I'm with that I'm gonna let down if I don't show up to this get fucked in the best way and I would (laughs) break out you know I'd break out of my house and go to the gig and my heart would be racing I'd be like oh my god I'm being so rebellious I'm leaving and you know I had friends in on it too. They would come and pick me up. I'd be like, right, wait around the corner and come get me and drive me to the concert. And thank you so much. That happened often. So so, and I would know I'd get in shit when I get back. You know, I'd I'd be like, oh gosh, this is going to go well. But like, how funny is this that instead of you sneaking out to like party or like get drunk or like do, you know, things you shouldn't be doing, you're sneaking out to perform in the jazz (laughs) band and like the school musical. Like, you're like, I just want to hang out with my friends. We've worked so hard for this. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, it's so wild. You're obviously not evil incarnate. Like, you seem like you're a pretty good kid. If at 16, your main concern is not letting the choir down because you have a part in the solo and without you, it falls through. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, come on here. But I stood my ground, you know, I was like, no, I've worked really hard for this, like whatever. And I, and I would do it and I would just, I would leave. I would get out of there. I didn't say a word. I was like, I don't care, whatever. And I would come back and I'd go straight to my room and just <laughs> wait for it to kick off. You know, at this age, I was having some problems at like 14 and stuff. I'm a teenager, you know, going through puberty. We all know it sucks. It sucks balls. Nobody likes it. 
you know, and I, I developed an eating disorder around this time. I did struggle with some aspects of kind of growing up, I guess. I kind of already thought I was an adult, but telling my mum that I got my period, I don't know if that's TMI to talk about on here, but you know, it is what it is. You know, it was like a big problem. You know, it was like a, I felt really bad about it and guilty about that. And she made me feel bad, you know, it was like, oh, well, I guess I'll have to like sort you out now then. And she didn't teach me how to do anything either, you know, so I felt like it was kind of wrong and stuff, which, you know, it just, yeah, it's it's not great. Like everything I learned was about like puberty and growing up and stuff. I learned from my friends at school because everyone would talk about stuff and that was it. My mum was not helpful in that. She was like, well, you can't get a boyfriend, you know, because you, not to quote being girls, but you will get pregnant and die. <laughs> <laughs> I was feeling quite down about the whole double life thing. You know, I had a really good life at school, like great friends. I did well in my classes and stuff. And then I'd go home and it would be this like complete 180 where I was this like little demon. And it was scary to be there. And I was struggling to cope with it. I got kind of depressed, really lent into my emo phase, really lent into it. You know, (laughs) I had Avril Lavigne on, I had my stripy shirts. I was just there. I was like, this is what understands me right now. (laughs) And I started to, you know, restrict what I was eating just to kind of feel like I had some kind of like control on what was going on. I always think like eating disorders are like cults you put on yourself, like because you follow like these rules, these rituals, you have to do it or something bad will happen. You have this self-talk to yourself that's so negative and, you know, it's probably a weird way to describe it, but I made my own rules and I stuck to them. Yeah, it is kind of like a self-imposed cult of one. Yeah, (laughs) a controversial thing to say but in a way it it kind of saved my life because I was not able to communicate what was going on at home to anybody at school I didn't know how to say anything about what was happening I was really afraid that my mum would find out that I said something and they always would say that you know social care will split you and your brothers up and you'll never see them again So I I didn't want that to happen, you know, like I I really love my brothers and I was caring for them, you know, like to not be able to have contact with them would have broken me. This sort of led me into this quite obsessive way of dealing with it. And I really hate when people think it's all about vanity, you know, like it's a vanity thing that, you know, oh, you're just trying to be skinny or you're trying to look good. And like, it's so much darker and more disturbing and deeper than that. If I wanted to just be skinny, I would just go on some crazy diet and call it as such. I did not want anyone to know what I was doing. I did not want to get caught out or told off or anything. And I would try and hide it and stuff. But, you know, when your hair is falling out and you look like death every day, people say stuff. And that's the only thing that pulled up to my teachers and stuff at school, that there was something really wrong because I didn't act up. You know, I didn't get in trouble. I did okay in my grades and stuff. And yeah, that was the only thing that gave them an indication that something was really off. So that's why I say that kind of saved my life, even though it it, it didn't. But it was a way of asking for help, I guess, in retrospect.
I mean, you being in such a controlled environment, being told from the tiniest age that you are the reason that everything goes wrong in your family and not having any control of anything and then finding, unfortunately, an eating disorder and being like, finally, the control that I desire in my own life and getting caught up in that is what was the cry for help, which gave your teachers the physical evidence that something was going on. Because everything else was happening in your head, like not in your head, but psychologically. Yeah. That is, I mean, not the best way, but wow. Yeah. I mean, it really truly did in a way save your life. So your teachers notice that you are underweight and that it looks as if though you are struggling and what happens? Well, they just talk to me, you know, I have a, a person in my life who was a teacher at the time that I'm still friends with to this day. And there was a time we have Easter holidays here. I don't know if you have like it the same there, but it's like a two week break in like March. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was off for this break and, you know, things were really bad at home. (laughs) I decided at the beginning of this break that like, great, well, I'm just not going to eat till I go back to school. That's what I decided to do. And that's exactly what I did. And it was, you know, two weeks. It was a long time. But I had to go into school for recording things. The teacher was my music teacher and I adore her dearly. We're still really good friends. I spent Christmas with her. Like she's so special to me. But I was in doing this recording and she was like, what the hell is going on? Can you tell me? And I told her a little bit about like these e-meter things. And, you know, it was a bit sporadic and random. But she asked me and I just I opened up a little bit about some of the stuff that was going on. You know, and that's kind of what that's like the first time I remember telling an adult some of this stuff. And you know what? She didn't freak out. She didn't make me feel like I was weird. She just listened. She went, okay. you know, I've since known later that she was like, what the fuck do I do? (laughs) You know, but she was so great with me and it enabled me to, to talk about it a bit. And yeah, I ended up seeing like a counsellor and stuff. I had some therapy and things and my parents knew about this. They weren't happy about it. The eating thing made them quite angry. I distinctly remember having a pan thrown at me once, like just like, you know, just fucking eat something like that kind of thing. Oh my God. And it was really, it was scary. You know, it was a scary thing. And they were like, school keep ringing us about this. Why are you trying to make us look bad? And every time I'd have like therapy, it would be like, what did you tell them about us? You know, they never asked me like, how are you doing? Like, it was fucking crazy. I was having these problems for a while because I was, I guess, a bit older. My mum was a bit more, she got quite violent with me. Like she would physically fight me, you know, and take me on. It was usually, it happened a few times when I was littler, but it happened more frequently as I got older. She was an alcoholic. I don't even know if she still is, but it would always be really late at night and it would be something that I would be like woken up to, you know, and she would come and fight me. And this was happening a lot. So when I turned 16, (laughs) she didn't even do this kicking out. She sent my dad to do the dirty work. He came to me and said, but I I turned my birthdays in November, by the way. So two weeks after this is when I have this conversation. They're like, yep, you know, by the beginning of next year, so... I've got like six weeks or something till this is going to happen. It's like, yeah, you have to leave. We're going to put you somewhere. We've found a bed sit or whatever. We're going to put you there. And he said, it's not safe for you to stay here anymore. What? I kind of was like, I get that. But he should have kicked her out, not me. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh my God. So you're kicked out at 16. Yep. Where do you stay? So my dad found a place for me. It was a, what we call a bed sit. I don't know if you guys have that, but it's like a, it's a shared house and other people live there. Now the people that lived there, they were all adults. I don't think any of them spoke English at the time because I couldn't talk to any of them. Like they were just off doing their own thing. And, you know, I would try and say like, hello. And they just kind of ignore me. There wasn't a lock on the front door of this place. So anyone could just walk into it, which always freaked me out, you know, and there were people like, I remember a few times I had like one of those skylights, you know, like a window on the top. There would be people on the roof, like doing drugs and shit. And it scared the fuck out of me. Yeah, so it was a really weird place to be in. But weirdly enough, it was way less scary than being at home. Like I had this really strange thing happening where I was like, okay, there's some scary stuff going on here, but it's really not as scary as being back at home. I was kind of relieved in a way. It was a weird one because I was like, I should feel more sad, but it's not as scary here. Like I'm not scared of what's going to happen when I go home. It was just, yeah, it was a weird place to be in for sure. I was supported. I will say that I have people at school and things that properly looked out for me way more than would be expected of them, of their jobs or anything like that. I was so freaking lucky because I had I not had that, I don't know that I would have like made it through. You know, I don't think I would have. I was lucky. thought it was really interesting that you found freedom in that place. Yeah. (laughs) That you're in this like situation. You're like, I'm 16. I'm living in like a bed in like a shed with like a bunch of other random people. They're doing drugs on the roof. I'm terrified out of my mind, but I'm free. Yeah. And being free is so much better than like terrified is below free. So you're like, it's fine. This place is scary. I'm free. It's okay. This is still better than before because before I was terrified and controlled and here I'm terrified and free. Yeah. Completely. Completely. Wow. So that was 16. Yeah. That's 16. Wow. And I was so, I mean it honestly, like, I don't know what teachers are like in other schools, but I feel like it's an anomaly that I got so guided and supported. I was doing GCSEs at the time, which are like your grades in, you know, in school you do them when you're 16. And I was thinking that I wasn't going to be able to finish them because I needed to get a job to pay for this place because my dad was like, we're going to cover you for a couple of months and you've got to figure it out, basically. I told my school this. I basically went back. You know, there was the Christmas break and I'd moved in the Christmas break. And beginning of January is when we go back to school. And I go in and I'm like, I live on my own now. You know, and I was just, I didn't know how to say it. And they were like, wait, what? I was like, yeah. And, you know, a couple of them came and checked this place out. They were like, where are you living? What the hell? They helped me do things like grocery shoppings. I was getting like 30 pounds a week. It's probably equivalent to about like $40 or something, you know, to buy food and stuff. But like, I didn't have like plates or I didn't have like the things that you need to do, (laughs) you know, having a house. I just didn't have that stuff. You know, I had my clothes and my bedding and that was it basically. So I didn't have all those things and they helped me get some of that stuff, you know, which I was like so embarrassed by it all as well. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. Like, 
I never wanted anyone to feel like sorry for me or anything. I knew it was all kind of shit and weird. And, I, you know, I'd always hoped that my shitty life at home would never leak into my friends and stuff. You know, my real. Yeah, I just didn't want them to be married up. I was like, it's, I don't I just wish they didn't exist together. So it was shit to have to go through that with those people. But I'm so grateful that I did because they honestly restored my faith in humanity and they helped me get funding as well so that I could finish my schooling. It was really scary. I had to go to like a solicitor, had to tell them my story and and they while they're writing down a letter and stuff and taking notes and they sent it to my parents and basically said like, we need them to agree to this legal estrangement or emancipation, whatever the wording is of it, and basically confirm that there's no chance of reconciliation. And we need them to agree to give your guardianship to somebody else. Now, it's not the same as adoption or anything like that, but it's so that somebody can advocate for me and, you know, sign like permission slips at school and things like that. And this music teacher was the person that was on that list for me, my my advocate. And they were like, listen, if they choose not to sign it, you might have to go to court with them. And I was like, what, like lawyers and murders and stuff? Like, I don't want to do that. And they were like, no, it'll be, you know, a civil thing. And it's not like TV, basically. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, cool. Luckily, it didn't come to that, but they signed me over to somebody that they had never even met. Just willingly, they did it. And I always find that crazy. But that whole process, I would never have done it by myself. I would not have the first clue on what I was supposed to do. It's just, it's so unbelievable that at 16, they kick you out. You have to get an advocate. They sign you over. They're like, yeah, fine, whoever. It's great, whatever. She's evil. So it's this is the best for everybody. How did they feel about your brothers? Were they also evil or were they the golden children that could do no wrong? Like what happened to them? Yeah, while I was there, I was kind of scapegoated and it was on me. But when I left, again, fine for a few months. And then the blame got shifted onto them, which I really hated to hear about later on when we could reconnect again we didn't get to talk and it honestly broke my heart every day because they weren't allowed to talk to me and we went to the same freaking school and they weren't allowed to talk to me and it broke my heart and I found out later why because when they finally got in this situation where they're being blamed and stuff they said you know we were told we couldn't speak to you and if we did like mum would kill herself so that's why you were kicked out that's why we couldn't talk to you because she said that you being around was the reason she was going to kill herself. Sorry, I should have well trigger warning that. Sorry, sorry, listeners. But yeah, I hated it. I hated that. And we have got to reconnect and it's been wonderful, but it sucked. And I, it was like seeing them at school and not being able to like have a chat with them or see if they were okay or anything like really sucked. So is your mother the only person you haven't reconnected with yeah and you have no desire absolutely not no I I know it's harsh and it sounds awful but I don't care if I never see her again no I could understand that so how did the rest of your life turn out sorry because I see you on YouTube and (laughs) you know you're telling your story and you're helping other people tell theirs and 
you seem like life has gotten a lot better. So what happened after the emancipation? I, I was, like I said, really well supported by my friends and people around me. I like had this mission that I was like, I'm going to live in the capital city. I'm going to make it. I'm going to go and, you know, live out my music life or whatever, all this performing stuff. I don't really do it so much as anymore, but it was a really big part of my growing up. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to get on the West End, of course. <laughs> like, obviously, know, delusion, <laughs> <laughs> delusion. But, you know, it was something I enjoyed. So it was like, OK, I can go and do a degree. I'll go and go to university and I'll study this. And, you know, I needed to do a degree in something to kind of get out of my town or whatever. And I'm in a lot of student debt and probably will be for the rest of my life. But <laughs> it is what it is. And I I left and I went to London and I got to study and everything. And I've been here ever since. It wasn't always easy. Those years between being back in that town and leaving, I was quite depressed, obviously, with some of this stuff. When I was 17, I had enough. I was like, I don't want to play this game anymore. I'm sick of it all. Like, it's hard to live. It's hard to exist because... There's just so much pain and hurt that I'm feeling and I couldn't I couldn't cope with it anymore, you know. And I had made one of the stupidest decisions of my life, which I feel stupid about to this day, you know. And I had decided after thinking about it, I was like, I'm just gonna I'm gonna end this once and for all, you know. I didn't want it to be obvious or messy or anything. I like packed my room and stuff up to make it kind of easy for, you know, whoever had to deal with it. And I had taken like a bunch of pills, basically. Nothing crazy. It was literally like pain medication that you could get over the counter. But I knew that if you took enough of it, it would, you know, you could fuck yourself up and die. And I thought, that's it. I'm just going to do that because I, I can't do this anymore. I'm sick of it. Yeah, so I, I set this up, you know, I'm going to like, you're, not, you're only allowed to buy like two packs of anything in a shop, you know, so I, I'm like going around getting these things from different places. I don't think I've ever told this story like on a thing, by the way. So yeah, I had, yeah, I had bought all of this stuff, lined it all up and just sunk it, you know, and took them back. And I was like, right, we'll see what happens, you know? And I did maybe... I want to say I took like 20 in the morning, right? So I didn't know how long this would take. I didn't know how whatever, but I was like, we'll start there and see what goes on. I still had to go to school. I went to school that day and was fine for most of it, but I had a rehearsal after it for like a little community theatre show and I got there and, you know, I was feeling a bit ill and I was yellow. Like my, I started to get jaundice, like my skin went yellow. and. The guys there were like, you don't look great. Like, you should probably go home. And I was like, yeah. He was like, are you all right? Like, you feel okay? I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just like tired, you know, whatever. And I did go home and I was like, okay, this is obviously not working. Like, I'm feeling awful right now. And so I took a bunch more of these pills to just go, right, maybe I'll just do it. And then by the I won't wake up in the morning and that's how this is going to go down. I don't know. I don't know how to... I don't know how to kill myself. I've never done it before. Sorry for the dark humor, but you know, it's, it's, it's all I got. You'd be surprised. I mean, 
when we're talking about really heavy things, sometimes we have to make a, a dark joke to lighten the mood. I understand. We understand. Yeah. I'm sorry. I feel like I should have asked as well if like you could, wanted to hear this or not. Like, No, I'm it's sorry. okay. <laughs> we got trigger warnings in the beginning. So people are, we're good. We're good. Okay. We just want to make sure that you're okay. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay. Okay. I'm okay. Yeah. So this did not go down well at all. I woke up like in the middle of the night, like throwing up, whatever. And I was like, oh my God, I've made a stupid mistake. Like this is not going to go down how I thought it was. And I start freaking out. I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh fuck, what have I done? And I called an ambulance and I told them what I did. I didn't say why. I didn't say anything. I just said, I took a lot of pills. What do I do? And, you know, they came, picked me up, whatever. And I was in hospital for about five days because they had to like unpoison me basically. I mean, were you like in liver failure? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So they had to like unpoison me and whatever from all that shit I had taken. It sucked. And I was like, I am never doing this again. But when I got there, it was like, you know, maybe three o'clock in the morning or something and this teacher this music teacher came down and saw me and I did not want her to be there I didn't know that they were going to ring her or anything but I guess they had like it was like an ice contact or whatever and she rocks up and I'm like oh I'm like why are you here why are you here like I hated that she was there and I was wearing a a hoodie from like a couple years ago that we would have for our school shows and stuff and she walks in she just goes you could have at least advertised the right show that we were doing this year. Like, and it, it probably made me laugh. You know, it was just really funny. And yeah, she just kind of checked in on me and stuff. And yeah, I spent the next five days thinking about what I did. And I came out of there and was like, I'm never going to do that again. Like, I don't want to die. Like, I want to figure it out. And there's a lot of people I love and I'd get like FOMO. I'm like, what the hell would happen though? Like I'll miss out on all of the stuff that goes on with all my mates, like all of the things. I don't want that. And it could just be nothing. That's the first time I think I really considered like what death was. And I just thought, well, what if it's nothing though? What if it's just cut to black and that's it? Which I kind of believe it is to, you know, that's my sort of feelings about it. But I was like, well, that that's just nothing then. And I'd rather be here because nothing is nothing. So I made a thing where I was like, I'll never do that again. I've never, ever felt like that again since that happened. And yeah, lucky <laughs> to be alive. I always say I'm lucky, you know, because I really think I am, despite some of the situations I've been in. A lucky person <laughs> in general. Yeah. So Well, I'm happy you're here. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> and I'm happy you're here. <laughs> Yeah. We go through hard stuff. Yeah. I'm sorry that you had to go through so much of it alone. I mean, I wasn't completely alone. Right. Not completely alone, but there were definitely moments where you didn't have the support that you should have had. And that's sad. But at the same time, it's like, I hate to say, but it made you who you are today. But it did. And you are awesome. You are an advocate for others. Like I said, you you have this platform where you are telling other people's stories and giving people that space. Working with victims is so difficult and it is such a needed form of this communication to be able to show the atrocities from all the different spectrums of abuse. And it is just so beautiful what you have done with your life. 
So where are you now in your life? Yeah, so I live in London still to this day with uh, a bunch of my friends, which is great. Not like the TV show, but close enough. Like, (laughs) you know, they're all creatives, you know, and I run this YouTube channel, which is fun. I have a job as well outside of here, which I really like, where I get to work with children in a creative way. I help them make like news broadcasts. That's really cool. Yeah, I I get to do that. And yeah, this YouTube channel is something I'm really passionate about and I love working on. And I have got the chance to edit some stuff as well. I, I taught myself to video edit in the lockdown and really like it. And I found a creativeness in that. And yeah, I've just been getting to do stuff that I love and feeds my soul and helping people is massively on that list. I know that sharing your story can be so healing, one, for talking about it, and two, because other people can heal from it too, you know? It's that relatability thing. When you hear someone go through something you've gone through, you go, I thought I was the only one. Oh my gosh, you know, and it's really healing. And I understand that. And I love being able to kind of work in this space. And I've got to meet some really cool people, you know, from all over the world. And it's one of the great things about the internet, hey? Like, we can just tap on our little screens and here we are chatting to each other. So, yeah, I'm in that space. I'm working on it. I still don't really think, like, I'm a real content creator. Like, it's I have such an imposter syndrome. But, you know, I am really enjoying that I get to be myself and live authentically and I know it sounds cheesy but it's so true like I live for it and I love it (laughs) I love it too that makes me so happy to know that you are doing so well and you are so happy in your life so everybody that wants to follow along what's your YouTube channel where can we find you yes you can find me on YouTube at Kelly Copter like helicopter but with a K. I talk, (laughs) I provide in-flight entertainment. (laughs) You can find videos, (laughs) you can find videos about cults, interviews, and some live streams and things like that too. I'm also a big Lego nerd. And if you want to see any of those things, you can check out my Instagram at the underscore Kellycopter. There you go. How fun. And TikTok scares me, so I'm not there. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime anyone brings up Lego, I was like, oh, I used to love Lego as a kid. So I just, I love it. It's changed so much now, you know. There's so much that you can do as an adult, I swear. Well, and then I got back into Lego because my daughter, when she was little, she loved the Lego friends. And so we had the roller coaster and the amusement <laughs> park and the floor mat and the house and the beach house and the this. We had so much Lego. It was, not, it was a lot. We would build Legos for days. I'm sure Abby has very good memories of building Lego with me. All right. So at the very end, I ask rapid fire questions. These are specifically for Scientology. Okay. But there's also an MLM one in here. So you're going to okay. have to answer an MLM question. It's going to be easy. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kelly, what is one word that encompasses how you feel about Scientology? Con. What is a warning to somebody who wants to join the Church of Scientology? Try therapy. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what they're trying to sell without calling it therapy. So, yeah, it'll be a lot cheaper and more effective in the long run. Save your money. 
buy Lego. <laughs> Spend your money on Legos instead. Uh, what is the worst MLM in your opinion? Any of the makeup ones. Those are the only ones I have experience with. I've got friends that are like have gone to the dark side, you know. Not and I say friends, people I know on Instagram that I have met a few times or went to school with. They're like, yeah, you can get involved in this makeup company. I really love it. The products are great, and all you do is sell it, and you basically made loads of money. And I'm like, what happened to you, man? What happened to you? <laughs> Yeah, the M- that's all I really know about the MLM stuff. But I'm sure I'm going to learn much more over the coming weeks, having met Michelle and yourself and everything. So, Oh, yeah. If I can't help you, Michelle can. <laughs> and if Michelle doesn't tell you, I will. <laughs> what is the hardest lesson that you had to learn while you were in Scientology? People telling you who you are is not always the truth. <sighs> And finally, give me a positive takeaway from this entire ordeal. I have managed to learn from my experience and use my experience with adversity to reach people and talk to people and understand what the people have gone through and put it into words. And that has been very rewarding and positive. And I think when they declared me evil at six years old and predicted that I would bring down the church. I hope that I do. (laughs) They decided this, not me, okay? I mean, I feel like you're kind of fulfilling the prophecy. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) They shouldn't have said that. They wouldn't have encouraged you to do that. I mean, you know, you are a suppressive person. Don't fill our brains with great ideas or we might do them (laughs) well kelly i just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and being so open and honest and vulnerable and candid with us for telling dark humor for sharing tears with us and for telling us your story i really appreciated it honestly thank you you're a fabulous host and i've very much enjoyed talking with you today and meeting your puppy (laughs) (laughs) I know. She's always around here somewhere. Thank you again. (laughs) No worries. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast or visit our website at lifeaftermlmpod.com. And don't forget to check out our Patreon for exclusive content and join the community on Discord. You can find all of the links to follow in our show notes. Life After MLM is produced by Roberta Blevins. Audio editing is done by the lovely Kayla Craven. Video editing by the indescribable RK Gold. And Michelle Carpenter is our triple emerald princess of robots. If you have a story about a cult, fraud, scam, or MLM and want to be on the show, please hit us up. We would love to help you tell your story and start your healing journey in Life After MLM. See you next time, Hans.